It's continuously amazing how so many people spend so much of their thinking time and casual discourse on left versus the right debates. Some people are willing to go as far as having big arguments with family or friends. On the fringe, some might threaten violence. At an extreme fringe, some will even act on the violence. Welcome to The Sinner, a podcast where we examine the past to see how it impacts our present. I attempt to demystify and remove the mythical complications around events we see today. In this episode, episode 9, we will look at the wings, the left wing and the right wing, the history, the evolution and what it means in three select countries, the US, the UK and India. Are you on the left or on the right? Or none of those? Do you know where these terms came from and what they mean? The terms left wing and right wing were not even thought of before 1789. What seems casually normal to so many of us today, no one even knew what it was in 1788. So what changed? During the French Revolution, members of the National Assembly divided into supporters of the king to the president's right and supporters of the revolution to his left. This evolved over five steps between 1789 and 1815. So, as I just mentioned, the king's supporters sat on the right, while those who favoured the revolution sat on the left. In other words, the right wanted to keep the status quo. The left wanted to change the status quo. Step 2. By 1791, the National Assembly had become the Legislative Assembly. Innovators sat on the left. Moderates gathered in the centre. While the conscientious defenders of the Constitution found themselves sitting on the right. Step 3. When the National Convention met in 1792, the seating arrangement continued, but following the coup d'etat of 1793 and the arrest of the Guernians, the right side of the assembly was actually deserted. They were gone, and any remaining members who sat there moved to the centre. Step 4. Following the Thermidorian reaction of 1794, the members of the far left were excluded. The method of seating was abolished. The new constitution included rules for the assembly that would break up the party groups. Step 5, however, following the restoration in 1814 to 1815, political clubs were again formed. The majority of the ultra-royalists chose to sit on the right. The constitutionals sat in the centre, while the independents sat on the left. The terms extreme right and extreme left, as well as the centre-right and the centre-left, came to be used to describe the nuances of ideology of different sections of the assembly. Remember, at this time, the terms left and right were not used to refer to political ideology, but to seating in the legislature. What is critical to understand is that left and right only happened because a new line of thinking got underway, that being to establish a vision of the world that challenged the status quo. Prior to 1789, absolute monarchism was the norm in Europe. 
the French Revolution just gave voice to an alternative. 1848 was a pivotal year. It was a revolutionary year, yet again, and it was also the year Karl Marx published his Communist Manifesto. After 1848, the main opposing camps were the Democratic Socialists and the Reactionaries, who used red and white flags to identify party affiliation. With the establishment of the French Third Republic in 1871, the terms were adopted by political parties, the Republican Left, the Centre-Right, the Centre-Left, and the Extreme Left, the Radical Left. The beliefs of the groups called Radical Left were closer to the Centre-Left than the beliefs of those called the Extreme Left. It was not until the 20th century that the terms left and right came to be associated with special, specific political ideologies that were used to describe citizens' political beliefs, gradually replacing the terms red and the reaction to those associated with the left. People on the left often called themselves Republicans, while those on the right often called themselves Conservatives. New radical ideas got pushed to what was increasingly the left, such as workers' rights, labour movements, women's suffrage and so on. The right remained for those wishing to retain the status quo. As some ideas that were radical or leftist became mainstream, such as female suffrage and worker rights, they moved from the left to the right because they then became the status quo. The 31 years between 1914 and 1945 saw the crystallization of the left versus the right argument. This was the age in Europe of two bloody world wars, the arrival of a cold war, the Russian revolution making communism mainstream, as well as the arrival of fascists making them mainstream. It was arguably an age of extremes. In addition, it was also the age of massive empires. In other words, Everything happened in a short time frame. Although 1945 saw the European fascists defeated, it saw the imperialist capitalists and communists survive and then thrive. The stage slowly became set for the post-1945 era that would remain uninterrupted until the 1970s. The post-1945 era saw the capitalist imperialists and the communists battle it out on the world stage. In the initial stages of the Cold War, the communists appeared to be winning. They had China, the USSR, Cuba and a host of other countries all across the continents on their side of the ideological argument. With the downsizing of the European colonies and the imperialist capitalists appearing to be losing steam, however, after the 1970s, the capitalists, though less imperialist by then, adopted a more robust democratic framework in their countries that soon became an attractive proposition as an alternative to hard-nosed authoritarian communism. Capitalist democracies began adopting much of the moderate leftist agendas. Many of the capitalist democracies also entertained their own communist parties. In many parts of the world, these communists actually won and lost elections, they were communists in democracies, but not authoritarian. It gave them voice, so they didn't need to create a violent revolution. By the 1990s, the capitalist democracies were mostly massive government entities, allowing for only a highly regulated private sector and pampering to big business. 
In addition, the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989, the collapse of the USSR in 1991, combined with the embrace of capitalist authoritarianism by China, saw the main bastions of communism evaporate. As the 1990s concluded, the left and the right was mostly nuanced in most so-called advanced democracies. The aptly called centre or moderate factions were different only in semantics. The fringe remained just that, the fringe. In dictatorships, the concept of left and right is very academic. They don't have one or need one. To state China is left of communist is neither here nor there. They don't have a robust enough open political discourse to allow for political spectrums to exist per se, even though officially they are a planned state. But then again, most states are planned states. Most economies after 1991, to some degree, were planned states. I've spent the past several minutes explaining the origins of the left and the right, from 1789 all the way through to 1991 in fast-track format. The era after 1991 saw a radical shift in the way the left and the right became defined and how people self-selected their ideologies. As I record this podcast, we're in January 2021, the contemporary era, at least for me, where both the left and the right have come to identify with very different things than they were in, say, 1979, 1879, or 1779. I want to step back and try and make this a little bit more real for us. I'll spend some time on this podcast, looking at three different democracies to see what left and right means to people in those countries. I'm going to look at the political parties, or at least the main political parties, and I will also list out issues that they feel is important to them and their ideologies. Those three countries are, number one, the United States, number two, the United Kingdom, number three, India. Now, before I start, I will admit that I'm going to be looking at these countries and the left and the right in those countries in high-level statements. So if you're familiar with the politics in these countries, this is going to seem very nuanced to you, very too high-level. But bear with me, it's all coming down to a story at the end. Let's start with the USA. The US is a presidential style of government that has a central legislative assembly called Congress. American electoral politics has been dominated by two major political parties since shortly after the founding of the Republic. Since the 1850s, they they have been the Democratic Party, the left, and the Republican Party, the right. Since the last major party realignment in the mid-20th century, the Democratic Party has been the center-left as well as the Liberal Party in one, and the Republican Party has been the center-right and Conservative Party in one. Since the 1990s, both the Republicans and Democratic parties have shifted further apart. This two-party system is based on laws, party rules, and custom, not specifically outlined in the US Constitution. Several third parties also operate in the US and from time to time elect someone to local office. The modern two-party system consists of the Democratic Party and the Republican Party. However, these names, while they have been in existence since before the Civil War, 
have not always represented the same ideology or electorate. These two parties have won every United States presidential election since 1852 and have controlled the United States Congress since at least 1856. Since we are only looking at two parties, you might think it's as simple as pie. However, this near-bizarre two-party system, i.e. just one more than North Korea, consists of massive rainbow coalitions inside each of the parties. There are five major planks of the Democratic Party. So we'll look at the Democratic Party first and then look at the Republican Party. So, what do the Democrats believe in? Their five major planks are, number one, Democrats call for affordable and quality health care and favour moving towards universal health care in a variety of forms to address rising health care costs. Some Democratic politicians favour a single-payer programme or Medicare for all, while others prefer, prefer creating a public health insurance option. Second, Democrats have the long-term aim of having low-cost, publicly-funded college education with low tuition fees, similar to much of Europe and Canada, which should be available to every eligible American student. Alternatively, they encourage expanding access to post-secondary education by increasing state funding for student financial aid such as Pell Grants and student college tuition tax deductions. Their third main plank for the Democrats is that they believe that the government should protect the environment and have a history of environmentalism. Democrats support increased domestic renewable energy development, including wind and solar power farms, in an effort to reduce carbon pollution. Their fourth plank, the Democratic Party emphasizes social equality and equal opportunity. Democrats support voting rights and minority rights, including LGBT rights. The party championed the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which for the first time outlawed segregation. The Democratic Party appropriated racial liberalism and assumed federal responsibility for ending discrimination, and that is something that they keep pushing since that time. And moving on to the Republican Party. They're the party on the right. Number one, Republicans strongly believe that free markets and individual achievement are the primary factors behind economic prosperity. To this end, they advocate in favour of laissez-faire economics, fiscal conservatism and eliminating government-run welfare programmes in favour of private sector non-profits and encouraging personal responsibilities. Number two, reduced income tax rates increase GDP growth and thereby generate the, na the same or more revenue for the government from the smaller tax on the extra growth. This belief is reflected in part by the party's long-term advocacy of tax cuts. Republicans, especially Republican women, are generally against affirmative action for women and some minorities, often describing it as a quota system and believing that it is not in the interests of the people that it's supposed to be protecting. So, many Republicans then support race-neutral admissions policies in universities, but support taking into account the socio-economic status of a student. Moving on from the United States to the United Kingdom... 
the UK is a unitary state with devolution, devolution that is governed within the framework of a parliamentary democracy under a constitutional monarchy. Although the UK is dominated by two political parties, namely Labour, the left, and the Conservatives, the right, it is a multi-party system in both Westminster and in the dissolved assemblies of Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland. Labour and the Conservatives have traded governance on and off since 1924. Prior to 1924, the two main parties were the Liberal Party and the Conservative Party. Let's look at the two main parties in turn. We'll start with the Labour Party and then move on to the Conservative Party. So the Labour Party holds these core beliefs. 1. That the railways in the United Kingdom should be brought back into public ownership, also known as re-nationalising the railways. 2. The government should invest money in expanding and upgrading public transportation, such as buses and trains. 3. Tax on billions and multi-million pound businesses should be increased. Tax on income of the top 5% of earners should also be increased. The government should do more to tackle tax avoidance. Labour support for trade unions is second to none. The government should be able to place limits on how much landlords are able to charge rent, also known as rent controls. The minimum wage should be increased. They support worker rights. They believe more council houses should be built. Council houses are homes for those that cannot afford their own homes. They're opposed to austerity. They want to increase spending in the National Health Service. They actively support the welfare state and will invest more in it. And they believe that university tuition fees should be completely scrapped. Let's move on to the Conservative Party, sometimes also known as the Tory Party. And let's look at their main priorities. Well, number one, they believe that Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland should remain part of the United Kingdom. Two, free markets and education should create an opportunity for society. Three, support, they support increases to the national living wage and national minimum wage. Every child should have the best start in life and have access to good and outstanding schools. Bold reforms to welfare and vocational skills are central to tackling social injustice. Innovation, entrepreneurship and free enterprise are vital in society. Pensions should be tied to a person's average earnings. There should be strict controls on immigration to the United Kingdom. There should be more support given to members of the British Armed Forces and their families. Britain should keep its nuclear weapons. The monarchy needs to be preserved. There should be no char changes made to how elections are held in Britain. Now, let's move on from the UK to India. India has a parliamentary system. However, it also has a president, though the president is largely ceremonial. It is the Prime Minister who is the head of government. India is a multi-party democracy, meaning there are numerous political parties both at the federal centre and the state level. At the state, oftentimes, there are regional parties that have no presence at the national level. Oh yes, India is a federal nation with some states having as many people as some countries. Uttar Pradesh, for example, itself 
has a population of 220 million people and is a multi-party state in its own right. Numerous positions determine how political parties sit on the political spectrum. If we had to pick the two main political parties, then that will be the Congress Party, the left, and the Bharatiya Janta Party, or BJP, the right. In some states, for example, the Communist Party of India, Marxist, has come and gone. Yes, come and gone. Communists can be pro-democracy too. Here are some key beliefs of the Congress Party, and then we'll move on to the BJP. 1. Congress is a social, democratic and social liberal party that supports the values of freedom, tolerance, secularism, equality and individual rights. 2. They broadly support a mixed economy, social security and a system of progressive taxation. 3. They believe in the improvement of lives of economically underprivileged and socially marginalised peoples. Congress has traditionally supported a foreign policy of non-alignment that called for India to form ties with all sides, but to avoid formal alliances with anyone. Finally, Congress endorses a mixed economy in which the private sector and the state both directly intervene in the economy, which has characteristics of both market and planned economies. Congress advocates import substitution, industrialization, the replacement of foreign imports with domestic products. Congress believes the Indian economy should be liberalised to increase the pace of development. Now let's look at the key beliefs of the BJP. The official philosophy of the BJP is integral humanism, a philosophy advocating an indigenous economic model that puts the human being at the centre stage. 2. According to the party, Hindutva is a cultural nationalism favouring Indian culture over others and that it extends to all Indians regardless of religion. One could contend that this marks a Hindu first policy but essentially it means an Indic first policy. Indic religions are those that originated in India Hinduism, Buddhism, Jainism and Sikhism taking a position against what it calls pseudo-secularism. The BJP opposes illegal migration into India. The BJP has taken a protectionist stance on the international trade and favours some populist measures on domestic economic policies. The BJP takes a more aggressive and nationalistic position on defence and terrorism. On foreign policy, the BJP keeps a strong independent foreign policy with a needs-based alliance based on cooperation. Of course, what I've mentioned for India, the US and the UK, a high level and does not capture other key policies or personalities inside those political parties. Often it is the personalities of people that people vote for, rather than policy or party. People like Modi in India, Trump in the US or Boris in the UK are interesting characters in their own right who both attract and repel in equal measure. So if you're from one of these countries, you know I haven't gone into detail and you know I haven't done just justice to these parties and policies. The idea here isn't to provide the colour around these topics. The idea here is to identify the key tenets inside these countries that make up the left and the right. Now, can you navigate left versus right? We've spent a good bit of time looking at the wings, their origins 
and a few countries where they apply. Two interesting observations I made as I did research on the left and the right in these three countries are, number one, some policies of India's BJP, say religious policy, are to the right of the US Republicans, who can come across as yet more to the right of some in the British Conservative Party. Two, the BJP is to the left of the Conservatives and to the left of the US Republicans when it comes to economic policies. So really, it just depends on what country you're in, where you are on the political spectrum. Sometimes you could be in one country, and that could be far right for another country, even though it is still right wing in that country. And of course, that goes for the left too. Remember, in India, there is a Communist Party of India that wins local state elections and sends MPs to the parliament. Yet, there are no Communist Party members in the British Parliament, and there are no Communist Party members in the US Congress. Something else I want to look at. Is allegiance to the left or the right worth the effort? These leftist and rightist movements appear emotional to a lot of people. But does it need to be? During an election in any of these countries, or indeed in any democracy-enabled country anywhere, we maybe need to just look at the policies beyond the hype. I know it's hard to do that and certainly less interesting, but it is the policies that can give you the clues. Policies can help you align. If you agree with a mix of policies from across the political spectrum, you will have broken a barrier allowing you to be objective to all sides. Then what you can do is make a decision based on who you have the closest alignment to. If you're in a position where you dislike 100% of the other side and support to 100% of your side, then you've jumped from objectivity to, well, propaganda. Your side, whoever it is, engages in the business of selling and marketing their people. You may think they love noble causes, but the reality is most politicians, even the ones you like, are sneaky enough to smooth talk their way through a gruelling event known as politics and elections. The downside of what I've just said, i.e. having objectivity, means that you're no longer following politicians, you're no longer watching dramatic media coverages, and no longer picking errors in the other side's arguments. Objectivity ultimately is boring. The opposite of objectivity, doing all the stuff I just mentioned that you shouldn't do, is actually entertaining and a lot more fun. Here's an observation. Trump supporters will often point out the nauseating Obama worship that the left did while he was in office, all the while worshipping their own guy, Trump. Obama and Biden supporters will claim Trump is a demon and ran a cult of personality, all the while as they themselves foam at the mouths to worship at the altar of Obama-Biden who Trump supporters will say is a cult of personality in their own right. The biggest benefit of being objective and accepting arguments from all sides is, well, it's just less stress for the person involved. You lower your own blood pressure. And you can just sit back and watch others fight it out. The left and the right are mental constructs born 
out of seating arrangements in 1790s Paris. Events afterwards gave life to the seating arrangements and then moved people in directions to the left and to the right, culminating in the rise and fall of the USSR and Nazi Germany, both authoritarian states. The left and the right since 1991 has reinvented themselves in the post-communist, post-fascist environment to meet the demands of the 24-7 social media and multimedia age. Dramatic television, supposedly great newspaper journalism and sensationalized social media crank up the heat for whatever side you follow. As for myself, I'm probably one of those people who are objective. I can look at the pros and cons for most things. I can look at the pros and cons for those on the left, and I can look at the pros and the cons of topics on the right. If I had to choose, I like to pick people and vote for people who are different, dramatic, and not established. It brings change, and I just like the change. doesn't matter necessarily if they're on the left or on the right. I just like the change. Of course, it is a lot more fun to pick a side and run with it. But should you want to be objective, here is a tip. Take a step back and realize the right supports Louis XVI, while the left dislikes the king and wants to run with a revolution. I want to end with a quote from the current Prime Minister of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu. It doesn't matter, he says. It doesn't matter if justice is on your side. You have to depict your position as just. Thank you for taking the time to listen to the Sinner podcast, a podcast that examines the current situation and puts them into context of history. Please be sure to subscribe and rate on Apple and follow on Spotify.